What is up, everyone? Welcome to your first episode of The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, June 4th, 2021, and I am your host, Matt Norton, here for the very first time with our producer, Nick Janusa. Nick, how are you doing today? Maddie, I am stoked beyond belief. I am ready to get this thing underway. Uh, it's been a long time coming, and I know we have like a lot of excitement, and I'm just ready to rip. Yeah, Noah, I don't, I don't think there's anyone more excited than the two of us, and if you are as excited as we are, I'm happy to have you here. If you're new here, which you all are since it's the first episode, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show will be your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT will have something for everyone, so we are very happy to have you as a listener, and I hope you're excited to be on board for the ride. Before we get started, we should probably introduce ourselves. As I mentioned, my name is Matt Norton. I've always loved the environment, and that started off for me as a love of animals when I was growing up, which eventually turned into a love for wildlife, wild places, and eventually renewable energy. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in environmental studies with a concentration in sustainability, um, and I have a master's degree in energy and environmental policy, both of which were from the University of Delaware. I've interned at the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo, where I did conservation education, and I got to work with animals a bit. So environmentalism is a big part of my life, and I wanted to have a chance to continue learning, continue creating and sharing with others, and helping people stay in the loop on environmental news. So that's why we're here. Yeah, and my name's Nick Janusa, and uh, me and Matt have been friends since uh, we, we could both barely walk. Um, and on the side, I make music, and Matt asked me to come on just as like an everyday guy who um, isn't so sure about all this stuff, but um, maybe I can offer a unique perspective. Yeah, and Nick's really downplaying uh, making music on the side. He's one hell of a musician. He's awesome with audio. So I figured who better to bring on board for uh, an audio podcast where I am going to need a ton of help. <laughs> I'm here for it all. All right, Nick, you ready to kick things off? Let's do it. Let's get into it. Awesome. So let's get into the show with a few quick hits. Hey, everyone. Nick here. So news broke of the MV Express Pearl ship sinking off the coast of Sri Lanka right after we recorded. The ship was on fire for 12 days, and the ship contained 25 tons of chemicals. We'll be covering it in full next week as the fallout develops. And now, back to our show. All right, so let's get started with a story written in the New York Times Climate Forward Newsletter. And it's titled, Biden Suspends Drilling Leases in Arctic Refuge. Yeah, so this is awesome news and means that, at least for now, drilling in one of the largest areas of undeveloped wilderness in the U.S. will be blocked. This was viewed as a huge achievement by the previous administration when they started to allow for these drilling leases again. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably agree that that's not really something to be proud of. Um, generally, I would prefer protecting wilderness that's critical to a lot of plants and animal life over drilling for more oil to each their own. Um, this move comes several months after President Biden temporarily banned the leases for drilling through executive order. He did that on his first day in office. So this has been a few months brewing. And the U.S. Interior Department announced today that they would oversee an environmental analysis of drilling on the land and that all leases would be suspended pending the review. The goal of that review is to determine whether the leases should be reaffirmed, voided, or subject to additional mitigation measures, meaning if they're going to continue drilling, they have to do some things to offset those damages. So personally, I'm hoping that they'll be voided. That's a very, as I mentioned, critical area to a lot of different animal and plant life. Um, but being subject to additional mitigation measures would definitely be better than nothing. So we'll see where this goes and we'll definitely be uh, keeping up with it as more news develops. Okay, so this next headline comes from Bloomberg Green and is written by Laura Davidson and Katsov Basu, titled Senate Panel to Advance Electric Car Clean Energy Tax Credits. The Senate Finance Committee can push nearly $260 billion in a package of clean energy tax credits, 
And that would include almost $32 billion in consumer incentives for electric cars, while also ending tax breaks for the fossil fuel industry. The package would also include tax credits for electricity production, tax breaks for energy efficient homes and buildings, and transportation incentives for electric vehicles and clean fuels. All those incentives would also be extended to any energy source that has no carbon emissions. Um, And the legislation received a vote along party lines with the Senate Finance Committee last Wednesday, but could be advanced despite the even 14-14 vote due to how the chamber rules work. So there's a lot to unpack here. And for more, I would highly recommend subscribing to the Protect Our Winters newsletter, where I first came across this article. The POW dispatch, as it's called, includes the notable quote from the White House Executive Order fact sheet, We know that the climate crisis, whether through rising sea levels or extreme weather, already presents increasing risks to infrastructure, investments, and business. Yet these risks are often hidden. So look, at this point, the science of climate change is undeniable unless you're a flat earther or don't believe in gravity. Focusing on the economic impact of how it will impact infrastructure is, in my opinion, a great way to get people on board with fighting climate change and making sure we leave a livable earth for our children. Some people have a really hard time caring about something that they will never experience. And while the effects of climate change are here already, I mean, you can look no further than the ridiculous pollen counts and extended allergy season we've been experiencing in the last few years. Some people are able to ignore all of that because they won't be here in 30 years. So, Personally, my favorite part about this proposal is ending subsidies for fossil fuels. I'm sure anyone who keeps up with renewable energy and loves talking about solar and wind energy has heard somebody say, yeah, solar and wind are cheaper than gas in the long run, but they're way more expensive at first. And by ending subsidies towards fossil fuels, it gives us a more accurate true price of carbon. And that makes renewables even more worth it than they already are. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Matt. And I think also incentivizing um, people to make kind of like more environmentally sound choices uh, in their purchases is kind of a no-brainer. And especially when you're talking about, the article said something about like up to 13,000 in credits. So I think that's like, that's like super substantial and could really like influence people to reconsider their next car, you know? Yeah, there's definitely some merit to certain people are more motivated by what impacts them personally, and there's no shame in that. I mean, we all make decisions based on us getting through each day. So for some people who aren't as motivated by, you know, mitigating climate change and protecting the environment as a whole, that's a big abstract concept. They might be more interested in hey, if you get this electric vehicle instead of a gas vehicle, you're going to save $5,000 on the purchase price. Yeah, and that's like that's maybe the difference between uh, the brand new Nissan Altima or like a Tesla, you know, Model 3, you know, so I don't know. That's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, agreed. Unless the uh, Nissan Leaf would like to sponsor the podcast, in which case <laughs> we are big Nissan guys. Oh, huge. <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's get into the next one. So this next headline um, comes from Scotty Andrew of CNN, and he reported that manatees are dying in droves this year. Uh, the die-offs could spell trouble for Florida. Yeah, this one cuts very deep for me. Uh, manatees were one of the reasons I first became so obsessed with wildlife when I was growing up. I remember it was either third or fourth grade, and we had to do a project about our favorite animal. And I chose the manatee because I wanted to do something different. Uh, anyone who listens to this podcast and knows me knows I tend to like things that are, um, not as mainstream. And, uh, yeah, this was another one where I, I wanted to choose the manatee because I was like, no one else is going to do a project about them. And I thought they were cute. So, um, I remember at a young age reading about how manatees were so friendly that they would often swim to the surface of the water to see what was going on and get struck by motorboats. So I was eight or nine years old and decided to make my project um, pamphlets for the class about protecting manatees. <laughs> uh, manatees themselves are extremely resilient. And in the article, Scotty Andrew mentions that manatees learned to follow the flow of warm water when power plants began popping up along Florida's coasts. They learned to live or try to live with horrible injuries from the boat strikes I mentioned earlier. 
And they've even learned to eat less when toxic algae began killing off the seagrasses that they like to eat. So the article mentions how decades of environmental stress has led to this year being one of the worst for manatees, where almost 750 have died in Florida as of late May. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission has called this an unusual mortality event, UME. And Patrick Rose, who's the executive director of the Save the Manatee Club, it's actually a nonprofit that Jimmy Buffett started 40 years ago, says that manatees are, quote, warning us of what else is going to come if we don't do a better job while there's still time to do something about it. In other words, manatees are your classic canary in a coal mine for climate change and how it's going to relate to marine life. And something I found very interesting in this article was the relationship between warm water and the manatee diet. So warmer temperatures encourage growth of algae, and that algae kills seagrass. This leads the manatees to travel hundreds of miles until they can find a new source of food. But as the temperatures get colder as they're traveling, they need to consume more food to stay warm because they don't have a lot of blubber like some other marine mammals. So it's kind of just this relationship where they're going to keep moving where the water is getting colder, but then they need to eat more and there's less food available. So it's you know, kind of a catch 22 of wanting to stay where they can or going to where the food is, but needing more of it. Um, side note, before we move on, West Indian manatees were considered nearly extinct in 2017, but were actually downlisted from endangered to threatened in 2017 um, as their population rose to over 7,000 again. Four years later, we're reaching a point where the population faces another very serious challenge the article proposes certain solutions for saving the manatees, such as vacuuming up toxic algal blooms and planting seagrasses and covering them in a cage until they've taken root so they can grow more. Um, if you're interested in it, again, definitely check out the article. It was written by Scotty Andrew of CNN. Yeah, manatees are the angels of the sea. We need to protect them at all costs. And also, Jimbo Buffett is always on the right side of history for some reason. I don't know why, but um, Okay. All right, let's get into the next one. So these next two are related. So we'll start with uh, one from the Seattle Times. And this is um, Seth Bornstein of the Associated Press who reported it. Um, and it's a new study blames climate change for 37% of global heat deaths. Yeah, so this actually reminded me of something Nick and I spoke about a few weeks ago. And it was a study that looked at three cities in America and how power outages would lead to more heat deaths as temperatures rise due to climate change and heat deaths can be a problem in cities and other areas with large populations and large wealth gaps between groups and neighborhoods. This study from the Seattle Times uh, was actually published in the journal Nature Climate Change and was conducted by dozens of researchers looking at 732 cities around the world from 1991 to 2018. And what they found was that 9,700 people died per year just in those cities, and that if you extend the sample to the entire world, that number is going to be a lot greater. So Anna Vecedo Cabrera, an epidemiologist at the Institute of Social and Preventative Medicine at the University of Bern in Switzerland, stated, these are deaths related to heat that actually can be prevented. It is something we directly cause, referring, of course, to rising temperatures being related to human-caused carbon emissions. In the United States, about 35% of heat deaths can be blamed on climate change, where more than 1,100 deaths per year in 200 cities can be attributed to rising temperatures. New York had the most deaths at 141, and Honolulu actually had the highest percentage of deaths attributed to climate change at 82%. So that sounds like a lot. It is. Just to break that down a little further, that's 82% of heat-related deaths not 82% of total deaths. Um, and, and this is a very difficult cycle to break as rising temperatures cause those who can afford to fire up their air conditioners, which are powered by electricity, typically from natural gas and coal. And that's going to go on to create more emissions, which worsens the problem. So two solutions I can see, and you tell me which sounds better on those hot summer months, especially in the city, lowering our energy consumption, you know, not turning on the air conditioner when it's 95 degrees or modernizing our energy infrastructure so we can power our homes and appliances with green energy, such as solar and wind. The, the first option you just stated was 
it's just not possible. Like it's 95 degrees in the city. You're going to throw on the air conditioner. You're going to buy an air conditioner if you don't have one. Yeah. I, I love sweating when I'm exercising. There is nothing worse than just sitting in your house or your apartment and sweating because it's just too hot. No, it's and then you can't sleep. You're just rolling around the whole night. No. Yeah. It's miserable. Yeah. That's why I'm all about green energy here. Cold sleeps. We want cold sleeps on this podcast. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to the next one. So the next one is also talking about reducing heat in cities, and it is uh, reported by Renewable Energy World. And the title is New Portfolio of Solar Canopies in California to Help Reduce Urban Heat Island Effect. Yeah, before we dive into that article, uh, the urban heat island effect that they mention points to the increased temperatures in and around cities compared to suburban and rural areas. Cities have more materials that absorb and reflect heat. So think steel, concrete, stuff like that, and typically have less materials that provide shade like trees. So the Long Beach Unified School District is working towards adding solar canopies at 21 of its schools and Standard Solar, which is the project developer, is also funding the project and will be its long term owner and operator. And this whole idea is to help the school system achieve its sustainability goals as 14 of the sites are fully operational and the rest are estimated to be completed by October of this year. The solar canopy should offset the consumption of 6 million pounds of coal burned in the first year alone and reduce the urban heat island effect that can be generated in dense urban areas, of which there are many in this district. For reference, the school district's office is about 20 miles south of the center of Los Angeles and 16 and a half miles south of Los Angeles International Airport, or LAX. Um, from a financial standpoint, the system is estimated to save the district millions of dollars over the 25-year agreement by minimizing summer peak energy demand, lowering air conditioning costs, and reducing air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. Being canopy systems, they also provide shaded areas for the students along with producing that energy. And that's something I found super interesting because we hear a lot about solar farms that are out in big fields and rooftop solar, but rooftop solar canopies is something that was definitely new to me before reading this. And I think it's a really cool trend. All right. So the last one is from our Reuters Africa team. And the title is Kenya starts its first national wildlife census. This story actually broke a few weeks ago, but I wanted to share it anyway, because we're going to be keeping up with it when the results come out. I actually came across it on Twitter from our friends over at sites. And for people unfamiliar with that, uh, SITES stands for Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Um, you can probably guess why we usually abbreviate it to SITES. And Kenya is running a census until July with the help of rangers, researchers, and community members counting animals on land and from helicopters. The goal is to identify threats to Kenya's threatened wildlife population. Some species of focus include the pangolin, which I'm sure everyone has heard of in the last year, um, and the sable antelope, which actually has under 100 individuals left in Kenya. Some of the preliminary threats identified so far include human expansion, climate change, and poaching. According to the Africa Wildlife Foundation, giraffe populations in Kenya have declined about 40% in the last 30 years. And unfortunately, that trend is uh, pretty common amongst a lot of different wild species. So the Kenya Wildlife Service and the Tourism Ministry at the Shimba Hills National Reserve, which is the reserve where the last of the sable antelopes live, launched this project. And it's going to cost about 250 million shilling, which uh, converts to 2.3 million U.S. dollars. Kenya has periodically been counting some of the more well-known vulnerable species like rhinos and elephants, but this is the first time that all animals in the entire country are going to be counted in a systematic way. Uh, one place to pay specific attention to is northern Kenya, um, as less detailed information is available because it's less populated and the parks in northern Kenya are less visited. The COVID-19 pandemic saw tourism drop throughout the country, which is difficult for them because 8.2% of Kenya's GDP in 2019 came from the tourism sector. On the other hand, 2020 was the first year since 1999 where no rhinos were poached in the entire country. So I'm really interested to see where this research leads, and we will for sure be keeping up with it and letting everyone know when the final results are released. All right, so those are all our quick hits for the week. Uh, Matt, you want to take a break? 
Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we will be discussing some national parks, including America's newest national park. Hey, Nick, before we talk about national parks, how have your allergies been this year? Oh, boy, Maddie, they have not been good. I have been suffering from the eyes. I've been suffering from the nose. It's been a brutal year. Might have been brutal, too. And, and something that's been extremely helpful for me this allergy season is our presenting sponsor for this episode of The Planet Today. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the materials, historic craftsmanship, and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. You can build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. Nick, how have you been using your Vala Altas? Golly, Matty, I've been using it every which way I can. Um, In the car, on the trail, um, after coming out of the water from surfing, it's literally been the right-hand man I didn't even know I needed. Yeah, I bring one to the office every day, and I definitely can't forget them on spring hikes or really any activity where pollen's out and about. And I hope our listeners know that we would never endorse a product that isn't environmentally friendly. And this is a great way to reduce your contribution to landfills by eliminating single-use tissues. I personally have three Vala Altas, and that lasts me about one laundry cycle. So it's been awesome having them. Yeah, go check them out. ValaAlta.com. Welcome back to The Planet Today, folks. And we're going to go ahead and move into our feature story of the week. So today we'll be talking about America's national parks, including the newest national park, the New River Gorge in West Virginia. The National Park Foundation highlights the gorge's whitewater river that flows through deep canyons. The New River Gorge is one of the oldest rivers in the United States. Seriously, it is millions of years old. And that area is now home to one of America's most biodiverse forests, making it a prime candidate for a national park. So the park itself was established as a national park in December of 2020, and it preserves over 70,000 acres of land. The park offers kayaking, rafting, camping, hiking, mountain biking, and rock climbing, which have all long been popular activities in the area. The National Park Foundation also offers hosted programs that focus on health and wellness while in the park. To be short, there's a lot of things you can do in this park, and there seems to be a little bit for everyone who loves being outdoors. And even though I just said there seems to be a little bit for everyone, not everyone is happy about this scenic area being declared a national park. The Guardian reports that locals are worried that the park and its surrounding communities will not be able to handle all of the new visitors that the park will get now that it has national park status. It had long been viewed as somewhat of a secret, albeit a very popular secret, but that secret is now out. The issue with increased awareness of all that the park has to offer is that, as it stands now, the New River Gorge lacks the money to fix the lack of amenities inside and around the park, as well as any other issues that might arise with increased trail traffic. Gene Kistler, who is the co-owner of the outfitter Waterstone Outdoors in Fayetteville, West Virginia, was quoted in the Guardian's article saying, The national park system of the United States of America is the gold standard in the world of conservation and stewardship. I don't want this to be the place where that brand is diminished. And some of his worries are the lack of campsites for new campers, overcrowding of popular rock climbing routes, hiking and biking trails becoming more crowded, and not having enough parking to handle the additional tourism. Kistler's been coming to the New River Gorge since the 1980s, and he's definitely not alone in those concerns. 
Eve West, a public information officer for the park, noted that their website's traffic is up 90% in the first quarter since being designated as a national park. Store owners nearby have noted people who love to visit national parks from out of state stopping by more often. And all this comes with no increase to the park's annual funding. A local nonprofit recently had to help fund the New River Gorge Park Service's request for additional stretchers for their rescue squad. And that's not to shame people who love national parks. I mean, I myself probably would never have gone to the New River Gorge. Now that it's a national park and I do live on the East Coast, so it's closer than a lot of others, I could definitely see myself going to this now. So I get it. I I truly understand why people are more interested in coming here and why store owners might be excited at first that, you know, it's going to increase their revenue and their profits, but it's going to come at a cost. There's only a limited number of supplies and space and parking available for all of the people who are going to be coming to the park now. Yeah. And in between like, you know, all the people that are traveling um, from west to east or, you know, it's like it's along one of the major highways. So if you're mapping out a cross country road trip with your buddies, it's easy to just kind of put that right on your map, especially like you said, there's no real there's not too many national parks in the east coast like there's they're kind of all concentrated more so in the west and, and northwest yeah man you were uh spoiled when you lived in california for a couple of years i i'm jealous <laughs> <laughs> yeah you could say that again so the national park designation also brought in another issue as some locals were impacted by the loss of seven thousand acres of land formerly used for hunting white-tailed deer turkeys and other densely populated animals I should add that much of the park is still available for hunting. Um, Senators Joe Manchin and Shelley Moore Capito are very optimistic about the economic benefits that the national park would provide to the local community and to the state as a whole. Since both senators sit on Senate committees that impact park service funding, locals are hopeful that their senators can help ensure long-term success in the national park tourism sector. The Park Service does possess the power to expand the park boundary for parking, uh, which could further help with some of the issues that are raised by the locals. Uh, I would like to add on a personal note while discussing West Virginia senators, hey, Joe Manchin, abolish the filibuster. (laughs) (laughs) National parks were further in the news recently as Zoe Schlanger of the New York Times wrote an article called America's Parks in a Hotter World which was part of their New York Times Climate Forward newsletter. We mentioned that newsletter earlier during our quick hits. It's really one of my favorites. It comes out once a week. Definitely subscribe if you're into this sort of stuff. And who knows, you might get a jump start on some of the things we talk about on TPT that week. Anyway, Schlanger starts off by stating that the core mission of the National Park Service has been absolute conservation of the iconic landscapes and the natural beauty of the national parks. But as climate change continuously poses a threat to our environment, the question becomes, how will the national parks adapt? The Park Service published new guidance for park managers last month regarding climate change, and the guidance basically is a trail map for how to choose what to save and what will ultimately lose the battle with climate change. This is a stark contrast with the National Park Service general guidance since its inception. I don't think we have to tell our listeners how serious of an issue climate change is, but when scientists say it will impact every part of our environment, that includes the national parks. The national park system in the United States has a long and storied history, beginning in 1864 when President Abraham Lincoln signed the Yosemite Land Act, which protected the area in California that would later become Yosemite National Park. Lincoln wanted to preserve the land for future generations, which set a really good precedent in a country that had mostly prioritized expansion at that point. Eight years later, President Ulysses S. Grant designated Yellowstone as the first official national park. Um, In doing some research for this episode, that was something interesting to me because I knew Yellowstone was the first national park, and I wanted to kind of get a scene of what was going on around that time And I had no idea that Lincoln signed the Yosemite Land Act eight years before Yellowstone was declared a national park. Um, So just interesting little tidbit there about, I guess it wasn't the national park system at that point, but I guess you can call it the, the seed was planted for this beautiful plant to grow. And the National Park Service itself was born in 1916 when President Woodrow Wilson signed the Organic Act. 
The service now employs over 20,000 people and is responsible for 85 million acres of land. So a ton of people rely on jobs from the parks and 85 million acres of land is a lot more than I can conceptualize or put into words as how large it is. That's a lot of space. So the National Park Service is extremely important to the United States as a whole and specifically to myself, to Nick and to our listeners, because if you're listening, chances are you've been to a national park or you want to go to a national park or you just love the idea of them. So the official mission of the National Park Service is to preserve unimpaired the natural and cultural resources and values of the national park system for the enjoyment education, and inspiration of this land and future generations. Um, I pulled that directly from their website, and it really just highlights all the different things that go into the national parks. For me, I love hiking, and I love learning about the parks themselves, but you know, people's enjoyment is equal to the park system as their education and inspiration for those young kids that you see on the trail that, you know, those might be your next park rangers. So, it's cool that the national park system as a whole really goes out of its way to make all three of those a priority instead of just conservation and caring about the people who are there. For many people, the national parks represent just that, a celebration of nature in its purest form. Topics like this have a ton of nuance though, as what the parks represent to you and me can be vastly different from what they represent to marginalized groups. For starters, you can look at a place like Mount Rushmore, which to a lot of people represents American independence and some of the people that made our country what it is today. Looking at a bigger picture of the monument reveals that the faces were carved into a mountain in the Black Hills known as the Six Grandfathers to the Lakota Sioux Native Americans. The Six Grandfathers represent six directions, north, south, east, west, above, and below. That area in the Black Hills where Mount Rushmore sits today was declared, quote, permanent Indian country in the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty signed by America and the Sioux and Arapaho tribes. The Sioux tribes signing the treaty was collectively made up of the Dakota, Lakota, and Nakota tribes. So what Mount Rushmore represents today, you can't really look at it without at least acknowledging the betrayal that it took to construct that monument, knowing farewell that a treaty signed by our government stated that would be permanently Native American land. So acknowledgement of that fact that the monument may have an entirely different meaning to the people who thought the treaty meant their land would be safe forever is really important when you're looking at a greater picture of something that we just kind of wildly accept as, yeah, that's Mount Rushmore. It wasn't always Mount Rushmore. <laughs> yeah, and everyone looks at it as like this American landmark that is, um, it stood the test of time and like the uh, the four pillars of our, you know, government or whatever. And it's just like, I didn't even know this, but um, yeah, it's kind of screwed up. Yeah, and to be honest, I didn't know it either until about a year ago. Um, I was trying to become more informed on a lot of the things that I just took as that's just the way it is. And something I'm trying to do now is focus on the way that it is, isn't always the way that it was. So for this, I was trying to get that greater picture of monuments and Mount Rushmore came up as to, it wasn't just picked randomly. Like no one just walked across and was like, hmm, that's a really good place to put uh, four faces. Who are we going to put up there? <laughs> you know, like it was it was yeah. done by design. And at this point, we can't go back and make the mountain look the way that it did. But acknowledgement of the fact that it's kind of screwed up is is pretty important here. Yeah, not cool, guys. So there's a really interesting article in The Atlantic from April 12th of this year by David Troyer, and it's titled Return the National Parks to the Tribes. Um, the goal of this article was to remind us of the importance of the land that we declare national parks to indigenous peoples. Um, they were obviously here before America was, and Manifest Destiny or Westward Expansion, whatever you want to call it by the United States, tended to marginalize both the environment and indigenous people. 
The national parks, according to Troyer, were intended to be natural cathedrals, protected landscapes where people could worship the environment. He further writes that many visit the parks to find something that exists outside or beyond us, to experience an awesome sense of scale, to contemplate our smallness and ephemerality. In other words, the national parks can give us a feeling of something bigger than ourselves. It can be almost religious in a way. And whenever I think about the national parks and their almost the spirituality associated with them, it reminds me of the song Heavenly Father by my favorite band, Bon Iver. Uh, Justin Vernon, who is the singer, songwriter, and all around uh, one of the most talented musicians of our generation, starts off the song by singing, ever since I heard the howling wind, I didn't need to go where a Bible went. Um, if you haven't heard the song, check out the acapella version live at the Sydney Opera House. That Actually, that whole concert's phenomenal. So if you want to go down a YouTube rabbit hole, check it out. Um, but if you've stepped foot in a national park, you'll understand the feeling of climbing that first peak and taking in all of the beauty. It's just special. And I, I get for some people how they can go there and it's this spiritual or religious experience that just you can't put into words the way it makes you feel. Yeah. It, it, it teaches us a lot about, I think about ourselves and I think it's, it's a good way to kind of look at your life too. And, and, you know, just kind of think about things and just gives you a lot of time to reflect and, and yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Nick. And In that Atlantic article, Troyer further goes on to mention that many of the landscapes that became national parks had been shaped by native people for millennia. Forests on the eastern seaboard of the United States look so plentiful to the settlers because of the strategic burning done by Native Americans. The goal there was to increase the amount of forage for moose, deer, and woodland caribou. So it's not like this pristine view of the wilderness that's untouched completely. A lot of it looks as beautiful as it does because it was done by design by the people who were here long before us. So when we look at the national parks, we sometimes look at them as pristine beauty untouched by humans, a world that we would see if technology never existed. I I think it's a great place to disconnect with the world and connect with the earth. I mean, one of my favorite parts of getting to a national park is you hit the uh, parking lot when you first pull in, putting your phone on airplane mode, and it's effectively just a camera from there on out. I shut out the world and just kind of live in that park for a day, a weekend, however long I'm there. It's, It's awesome. And the idea of America's wilderness being untouched is untrue because a lot of the national parks that we established were only after Native Americans were forcibly removed or following them signing a treaty that they were basically forced to sign under distress that gave us the land to make a national park. But it wasn't like no one was there. Um, So the article goes on further to describe the author's travels through several national parks, all while the parks were revising their approved activities due to COVID-19, and what the parks mean for a Native American like Troyer, who is the author. If you're interested in the topic, I would really encourage you to read it. And once again, the title of the article is Return the National Parks to the Tribes by David Troyer. That's T-R-E-U-E-R. Nick, what do the national parks mean to you? Yeah. So the national parks to me are this, it's like an outlet to me. It's, um, it's a way to escape the outside world to, you know, put down your phone, to forget all your worries and just relax and literally just take in the beauty that it has to offer. It's, it's truly, uh, inspiring. And I think a lot of the time with music, it's like you're struggling for a creative spark kind of and I think a lot of the time that can give it to me. Uh, it comes in, in different ways. It could be, you know, at the beach or doing whatever. But uh, yeah, I think the national parks or just even getting outside and taking a hike is 
a really good source of that for me. So, yeah, I think they're super grounding. Like you, you go there and it's weird because you feel so small and yet so welcomed at the same time. Like you're, you take a look at this beautiful wide open landscape. And right now I'm picturing this peak that I, I hiked in Acadia national park last October where I popped up on the beehive trail it was called and you just see foliage everywhere. And you're like, wow, I am so small. Like this world around me is so big and beautiful. And in that I almost found comfort in that there's still so much beauty out there. And a lot of times we can get hung up on some of the more scary news of what's going on. And, you know, especially with myself with a very big environmental focus, climate change is kind of this like black cloud that has thunder and lightning that is following around all the time where a lot of times I'll just hear some news about like this is going on in energy. And my first thought is, well, what does that do for the fact that carbon emissions are rising? And when I go out there, I'm kind of able to put that all away and just appreciate nature and the environment without any outside factors. And it's, oh, it's just, it's, it's awesome. I, I think that the parks are the best thing America has right now. Um, something I've been trying to be better at as I've learned more is recognizing the history is not as perfect as I used to believe it was. And I think for me, the best thing I can do now is to learn the history of each park that I'm going to. So my goal is to learn what was there before the parks were established. And more importantly to me is who was there. One really useful app that I downloaded on my phone is called Native Land. And it shows the tribes that lived in any given location and then provides a link where you can learn more about that tribe. So I get that I can't erase any mistakes of the past, such as, like I said, forcibly removing groups of people before declaring that land a national park. But I and we can always learn more about the land we're standing on. So that app's been really cool. You can you can plug in your current address, you can plug in any address and just kind of learn about what it was like before this. Yeah. And when you have like a, a really memorable weekend at a national park, it's something you just never forget. It really is. It's something that lasts a lifetime, I would say. Which national parks have you been to? Yeah. So I've been to uh, Acadia and Yosemite. And the more memorable one I would say w was uh, Yosemite, but both were just so beautiful. Yeah, I've been to quite a few. I've been to both of those, so Yosemite, Acadia. I have been to Grand Teton, Yellowstone, Bryce Canyon, Zion, uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and I think that is all of them. And yeah, Yosemite was very, very memorable for me, so I, I totally get what you mean. I mean, there was one one drive-in that I remember we, we had camped in a national forest the night before. And I remember driving in and just seeing the sun rising up over a sign that said Yosemite, however many miles away. And the group of guys over with were like, we are basically here. Sun's rising. Great start to the day. This is awesome. And yeah, it's just one of the best hikes I've been on. No, there's, uh, there's countless mem memorable moments I've had. Um, I could think of the same thing. We were entering the park and, uh, we had to put chains on our tires because it was snowing. We went like, I don't remember, like February, March or something like that. And, um, yeah, you had to have chains on your tires. So we literally got out and just laboring over these tires for like, literally like, I don't know, almost like an hour in the, in the pouring, uh, it was raining, but it was also like sleeting kind of too. So. Um, but yeah, it was so it just pretty, memorable. pretty ideal driving conditions. Yeah. Perfect. And then <laughs> me and, uh, me and Eric, actually one of our buddies, um, we spent, I don't even know, must've been an hour in the car, uh, on the way back. We were trying to leave the park, I think, or something like that in the snow. And we literally had to help these people. We had to get out and push these people with Florida license plate. 
out of the snow because they definitely were driving like a Toyota Corolla, like <laughs> yeah. two like two wheel drive, something like that. It was just terrible. Um, when you have been to the parks, are you more of a camper or you know hotel and drive in or what, what's your usual go to when you visit either parks in general or national parks? Yeah, so for I would say for parks in general, I would say I'm a camper. I think that's my preference. Uh, I think it's more of like, like we said, like putting yourself in nature. I think the closer you can get to it, the better. Um, but we did, we did do an Airbnb um, one time when we went to, or when we went to Yosemite, we were in, in an Airbnb, but we were literally like within the park so we could just go anywhere. And like we had hikes and trails like behind the house pretty much. So that was sick. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. I, I definitely prefer camping if I can. I went to Acadia in October and, um, the campsites were shut down. So I ended up staying in a hotel in Bar Harbor. Um, or if you are listening from Maine, Bar Harbor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. And it was, it was fun. I mean, the hotel was like a seven minute drive to the park, but I kind of just, I love having the sunlight wake you up. Um, being surrounded by trees and birds. And to be honest with you, I'm more of a hammocker. I I love setting up my hammock and my rain fly and just something about a cool breeze while you're in a sleeping bag in a hammock just feels right. Oh, nothing like it. All right. And last question for you, when should we start planning the first annual TPT retreat where you and I camp in a national park with our future recurring guest host, Dan and CJ? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say ASAP. Um, name the weekend is what I would say. I would love to make that a little annual, you know, no pod that week. We're going to be out in nature reflecting and then, uh, yeah, let's make it happen. That'll be a future us problem. Or we do like a campfire chat. That'd be cool too. Like a little, I don't know. (laughs) We're, We're just buzzed around a fire and like, Hey, what's up? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's the same audio quality. Just every so often, the wind picks up, and you hear that, and then you hear like beer cans clicking open, and <laughs> you hear a fire crackling. But other than that, I mean, the quality would be prime. Yeah, it's like <laughs> uh, it's like campfire ASMR, pretty much. That's what yeah. We're <laughs> yeah, we actually won't say anything. You'll just hear the crack of a fire. <laughs> All right, so that is it for this week's episode of The Planet Today. Before we go, I just want to read out the closing lines, and then we're going to end the show on a personal note this week. Uh, We will not have any outro music this week, and I think you'll understand why, but that's something that's starting next Friday, June the 11th, you can expect. Until next week, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at planettodaypod, or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. If you have questions you want answered, send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, send it to us or tag us on a a tweet or something. If you have a guest that you would like for us to have on, let us know and we'll try to make it happen. Um, We're starting small, but you know, if you, if you know Greta Thunberg or Leonardo DiCaprio, I'd love to talk to them. So let me know who you know. (laughs) Um, If you like the show, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on another service, the reviews there really help based on how their promotions work and getting us on lists. I mean, I listen to most of my podcasts on Spotify, but I still leave five-star reviews on Apple for the ones that I like because if you help the host, it's going to make the show better. If you didn't feel like the show was worth five stars, please let us know why by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and in your comment, make a suggestion. So any feedback, positive or negative, helps to make our show better, but I will only be reading the reviews if they have five stars. So tell us we suck. Tell us that I speak too much about things that don't matter, but give me a five-star rating and I'll read it. (laughs) So The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter for more, at Matt Norton. We are produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? So you can check me out on my Instagram. I am at MooseyFTheKid and also on SoundCloud where I make music. Uh, and that is SoundCloud.com slash BudlinCape, B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. And yeah, go check me out. Definitely check Nick out. It makes awesome music and very different sounds for different people. So if you like music at all, 
there's going to be some vibes for you because Nick can do it all. Oh, you're too kind, Matt. <laughs> Our logo was made by Kaylee Vietz of speechandgo.com. You can check them out for a ton of other really cool things that aren't necessarily related to the environment, but they do have some cool environmental resources there. So check out their website too. That's speechandgo.com. Um, as I mentioned, I wanted to close this show out with two things. So let's start on a happier note. Uh, this Sunday is my girlfriend Kaylee's birthday. If you like our logo, Kaylee's the one who made it. So Kaylee, thank you for supporting me as I make this dream of mine a reality. Um, knowing that you have my back made this whole task seem a lot less daunting and a lot more exciting. On a heavier note, um, my family lost someone incredibly important to us and the last two weeks have been extremely difficult. Uh, my brother Greg's fiance Margot passed away unexpectedly last Monday, and I think it would be a disservice to not say a few words about my sister-in-law today. Uh, Margot could light up a room and find a way to light up every single person in that room. She radiated warmth to everyone she spoke to. She was funny, she was kind, and she made my brother the happiest I've ever seen him. She was one of those people that just had a way about her to always make you feel welcome. And it was so rare. And it was one of the reasons she was so fun to be around. Margo, I'm gutted that you left us so soon, but the impact you left on this world will last a lifetime. Every time I hear Fleetwood Mac, I'll know you're here. Every time I pass a lighthouse, I'll remember that one I was so excited to see by your house in Cape Cod. And when I finally went there and found it, it was only about three feet tall. So you laughed and you said that you would take Kaylee and me to a real lighthouse when I showed you the picture of it. I'll miss getting random FaceTime calls from you and Greg looking for drinking buddies on Saturday night while you two were in San Francisco and Kaylee and I were in New York. I wish we got to go out to dinner like we planned to with you and Greg all the time once you moved back to New York. Sorry. I wasn't sure whether or not to delay this episode until after your services, but I know you were excited for me to pursue this dream of mine, so I wanted to put this out in your memory. Thank you for believing in me, and thank you for always believing in Greg. I love you, Margot, and our family will miss you forever.